basically what Flash House has evolved to is really the only, you know, we basically empower agents to offer their own iBuying solution. And, you know, our mission is basically to eventually have every realtor be able to offer an instant offer when they go on an appointment. And so, you know, it's, it's evolved so much from where it turned into this guaranteed sale program to now this agent led iBuying tool. And, you know, it's starting to just take off. It's pretty crazy. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Ryan Young. Ryan is the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Flash House, where he is on a mission to create a seamless real estate buying experience, empower realtors, and simplify the stressful process of buying and selling homes. Ryan was born with real estate in his blood as a third generation in the industry. He is also the CEO of The Young Team, named by Real Trends and The Wall Street Journal as one of the top 250 real estate teams in the country, where they have helped thousands of clients buy and sell homes. I really enjoyed learning about the ins and outs of iBuying, the larger real estate industry, and how Flash House has differentiated itself in a truly competitive market. Please enjoy my conversation with Ryan Young. So before we get to Flash House and the work you're doing today, I would love to start this conversation with your journey through through real estate. I know you've kind of had an interesting path, not originally in real estate. So, you know, tell us a little bit about how it is that that you got into this space. Yeah, so I do have a unique path. I actually graduated high school and during high school I cooked throughout my entire high school, you know, career and actually decided to go to culinary school when I turned 18. So went if I was going to go to culinary school, I was going to go to the best one and went to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. And I aspired to be this world-class chef and I did it for about 10 years, cooked all over the country, some of the best restaurants in the country. And, you know, it's funny, I, the restaurant industry is extremely hard on you physically, mentally, emotionally. And I think I was about 26 when all of a sudden I just kind of, I just kind of hit a wall and I decided I wanted more in life besides just cooking and you know, work and everything like that. And so I uh, reached out to my folks who were actually realtors in Cleveland and said, mom, dad, what do you guys think about me coming back home and getting into business with you? And I had no education to do so. I had no, I was never extremely entrepreneurial growing up. I was just a chef. And, you know, they said, sure, you know, let's do it. It was 2009. The market was in the dumps. They, it, they're literally, it was just one of those things. It's like, why not? Let's get you back to Cleveland. You probably won't do this for long, but at least it gets you back here. And once it gets you back here, then you can figure out what you really want to do. And so I moved back to Cleveland and I did work at a restaurant while I started in real estate, but I started working with them and I just, I fell in love with it. And I, I fell in love with every angle of helping people and the hustle and the grind. And, you know, I found that I was 
I came from a, a world where you worked 80 hours a week and, you know, you only got paid to work 40, but you, you put in your hours in the kitchen and all of a sudden I came into this other world where there were a lot of part-timers and there was a lot of people that, you know, were doing this as a hobby. And I saw this major opportunity mm-hmm. of like, you apply kind of a culinary work ethic to an industry where there's no ceiling and it just, I got a little taste of that and it just, I couldn't let go. And I just started pushing harder and harder and we started growing this team. And next thing you know, we've got a team now of 25 people, 28 people, um, the young team. And, you know, we sell over 600 homes a year, top team in Ohio. And it's just amazing to see over the past decade, this, you know, this culinary, this culinary guy that all of a sudden got a taste for business and for, you know, building and, you know, all of a sudden became much more entrepreneurial. And so 10 years later, it's just amazing to see kind of to look back and to see what I used to do and to where we are now and what we built with our real estate team, the young team, it's been incredible. Yeah. Can you, can you give us a little bit of an overview of, of young luxury and and the young team and, and what you've been working on there? Yeah. So the young, so I joined my folks, started building the young team. And over the past decade, we've just kind of kept seeing what I would consider as holes in the market. And one of the things that we're extremely excited about is we started Young Luxury. And Young Luxury, I actually, uh, I had a relationship with a, a very large broker in New York City. And when COVID started, him and his family were kind of getting ready to get out of there. And he grew up in central Ohio and I started having some conversations with them. And I just, I see Northeast Ohio, we have these beautiful homes and we have, you know, these incredible estates and I don't think we're marketing them appropriately. I don't think that, I don't think they get the level of attention that you would get in a larger, you know, metropolitan market like in New York or the Hamptons or San Francisco or these Miamis of the world where, you know, this client experience is just absolutely incredible. And and that's what the clients expect. And so we kind of said, what's, what could you do with us in Cleveland? And, you know, the guy sold $20 million apartments in New York city. And we started kind of brainstorming and saying, wait, let's actually put our heads together and let's actually, let's do something out here. And we, we started Young Luxury. Young Luxury is just a boutique firm that basically focuses on homes, luxury homes in Northeast Ohio, basically homes over a million dollars, which compared to New York City, I know that's probably considered <laughs> adorable. Uh, you know, it's a studio. It's first time home buyer studio. But um, no, I mean, so we've we've been building and we've been taking just some of the things that he's done in New York and some of the things that he has relationships with brokers on the West Coast and just really really changing the game from a luxury standpoint. And the crazy thing about it is I don't think a lot of the the, the luxury clients so far that we've really helped, I don't think they've had the expectations or standards of what we're actually doing. And once they see how we've approached selling their property and what we're the level of attention to detail that we're providing, I think now all of a sudden they're blown away. And I think just naturally in Northeast Ohio, we've kind of set this standard of, we do things the way we do things here and that's just the way it is. And we're really looking to push that and break that, you know, that mode of like, that's acceptable. And so we're really bullish on it. We feel like 
the luxury market. I know we'll talk a little bit about technology and some, some of this digital transformation. We feel like the luxury market is one of the few places, niche markets, whether it's real estate or travel or auto or whatever it is, we feel like that's one of the immune industries to disruption in technology. We think it has a place there, but we don't think that all of a sudden robots are going to be selling, you know, ultra luxury properties. We, we, in our experience, the client still wants an experience and they still want their handheld and they still want to be able to pick up the phone and call someone and have a conversation. And, you know, we, we just, we acknowledge that and we really, we really provide that type of experience to them. Over the last decade or so, as you've been kind of entrenched in the space, you you mentioned you didn't necessarily always think of yourself as entrepreneurial, but at what point did you begin to think about beyond, you know, kind of the real estate transaction where there is maybe opportunity for you to create a product or facilitate the the whole overall experience? I started to, to, to develop an appetite for growth pretty quickly when I got into it. And I think I saw that my growth was limited without the introduction of, you know, product and technology and these, these tools that can really help you scale quick, whether it can be not just product and technology, it could be marketing. You know, we started marketing at a much larger frequency on things like television and radio versus marketing to just little target micro markets because frequency hits all, you know, on radio or television hits all over Northeast Ohio which started expanding our business geographically. So I think as soon as you start to get an appetite for growth is when all of a sudden you need to introduce other tools to help you do so. And I think that was a major eye-opener to me, joining a real estate team or you know, my, basically my parents that have been doing things the same way for the past 25 years. And, and they were great at what they did. They just kind of stayed within their comfort zone. And, you know, it's, it's, I wanted to get uncomfortable. Yeah. So the, I think that's probably the best segue to start talking about Flash House and, and, yep. and the work you're doing there. So, so maybe you can just walk us through the specific history of Flash House, how it was founded, the, the reason you founded it at the time that you did, and, you know, a little bit of the history of, of what you've done since then. Yeah. So um, really bullish on, Flash house and the disruption in real estate that we're seeing. And we actually have this like very unique kind of evolution of how Flash house started to where it is now. And basically, you know, our real estate team, we started to get pretty aggressive with some of our messaging. And one of our messages were if we can't sell your home, we'll buy it. And, you know, this was probably started this in like 2015. We started marketing it on the radio and on TV. And, you know, that's a pretty compelling message. And it started making the phones ring. We also were doing it in an appreciating market and homes were selling relatively quick. So we actually didn't buy any homes because all of them were selling, right? You know, Mm. if this, we started this in 2009, we probably would have had to buy a lot of homes. But what ended up happening was I got a call from a gentleman and he said, I hear your ads all the time. I'm actually in Alaska, but I stream Cleveland radio. And I hear your ads about if you can't sell my home, you'll buy it. And I'm actually calling about my mom's house. She's out here now in Alaska as well, in assisted living. And I I want you to buy her house. And I told him, I said, you know, I appreciate that you reaching out, but we, we don't buy them unless we can't sell them. And he kept 
saying, I, I hear that, but I just want you to buy it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to have to fly back to Cleveland. Can you just buy it? And so finally, I, you know, I explained to him, I'm like, if I buy it, I, I just, I'm going to buy it below market value and I can help you sell it for more money if we put it on the market. And he's like, that doesn't, I'm not interested in making more money. I'm interested in the convenience of the sale. And so I ended up buying it. And, you know, after I, I, I ended up forming a pretty close relationship with them. And I, I just like, I kept, I kept trying to talk you out of me buying it because I kept <laughs> focusing on how much more we could sell it for. And he's like, Ryan, it didn't matter to me. Like that was not what was important. The importance was the convenience. I didn't want to be interrupted. I want to spend, I don't know how much time my mom has. I didn't want to have to fly back to Cleveland to get it ready. And so kind of the light bulb went off of not everyone just values top net dollar. And especially in the world we're in today, when you think of just Uber and Uber Eats and Amazon and everything is convenience, right? And it's a click of a button. And so you know, the light bulb went off of instead of doing this guaranteed sale program, let's just do an instant offer program where there's a lot of other people like him that that want this convenience. And so started doing some research and started all of a sudden learning a little bit more. This is about three years ago. Started learning a little bit more about what they call iBuyers. And iBuyers are really popular right now in the Southwest, in the South, in the Mid-Atlantic, in the Northwest. And what iBuyers basically are is just they provide you an instant offer on your home. You go on their website and you fill out some information and they basically buy your home. There's two very large ones, Open Door and OfferPad, that went public. I mean, these are massive companies. They're both billion-dollar companies backed by billion-dollar companies. And you're starting to see they're picking up a lot of traction. you know. And so I started seeing just what was happening and I reached out to a friend of mine that I grew up with in Orange and said, hey, take a look at these iBuyers. This is kind of an interesting business model. And, you know, let's talk about it. And so all of a sudden we decided from taking the instant offer, you know, that the young team was offering to actually turning it into a business, to building out the technology and, you know, the platform. We called it Flash House with the intentions of basically expanding Flash House throughout the Midwest. And being an iBuyer, we put together a team of engineers and our third partner, uh, his name's Tom, is like this product genius and just he really does a good job visualizing from the consumer journey all the way through. And so all of a sudden we put together this really cool platform and we started marketing it. And next thing you know, people were, the phones didn't stop ringing. You know, a bunch of people wanted offers on their properties. And, you know, so that's that's kind of where we were I would say up to about six months ago, this is where things got a little bit, you know, we just continue to evolve. What was interesting was as Flash House was buying homes, right? So I, I got a real estate company that's selling homes traditionally. And now I've built what would be considered a disruptor to real estate, which is Flash House. And I'm sitting here and I'm seeing the way the young team's conducting their business traditionally. And I'm seeing the way Flash House is disrupting realtors. And I started to realize that maybe the young team would benefit from working with Flash House versus competing against them. And so what we ended up doing was we started, the young team started basically offering instant offers to their clients powered by Flash House. So the young team would get a call from a seller. They'd go there and they'd say, here's what we could sell your home for. And we work with this company called Flash House and this is what they're willing to buy it for. 
And the young team's business started to explode because, you know, Flash House was going direct to consumer, but the young team already had a large database and already generated a lot of opportunities. And so all of a sudden, the young team became this sales force for Flash House. And the, the, the real light bulb went off that instead of trying to disrupt the real estate industry, why not empower the realtors with the tools that ultimately they are lacking right now? Realtors do not have the ability to provide their clients this optionality of a traditional sale or a convenience option like an instant offer. And so basically what Flash House has evolved to is really the only, you know, we basically empower agents to offer their own iBuying solution. And, you know, our mission is basically to eventually have every realtor be able to offer an instant offer when they go on an appointment. And so, you know, it's, it's evolved so much from where it turned into this guaranteed sale program to now this agent led iBuying tool. And, you know, it's starting to just take off. It's pretty crazy. That's an incredible story. I love how kind of the, the realization of, of taking these two things and, and putting them together. And, and that is really the catalyst for, for the growth that you're experiencing. I think it would be really interesting and, and helpful if, if you can kind of take us through maybe what a generic deal looks like. You know, what, what are the levers you're considering? How is it that you're actually making money and maybe going into a little bit of the calculus so that you kind of ensure that you're not getting trapped by overpaying for something? What, what is kind of the evaluation process here? Yeah. So we play in the predictability market, right? Like we feel very, and, and what's interesting and why you, you don't see a lot of iBuyers in the Midwest is because it's unpredictable versus if you go to Phoenix or Atlanta or Dallas or, you know, all these other markets that are a little bit newer. Basically the, the way it works is the more predictable the property, the more we can pay for it, you know, and the, the less predictable we explain to the seller, here's why this is less predictable, whether because comparables don't support it or it's a unique inventory. And so we have to make sure that we build in enough fat essentially to make sure that we can still come out okay. Basically, the way it works is and the way we're protected is we have a, a scalable process where if someone wants an offer, they go online, they answer about 25 conditional-based questions. When they do, they submit, enter. We receive the offer request we have algorithms, machine learning base that sends out an offer. If they accept it, the first thing we do is we actually do a virtual assessment where they walk around the property with their phone or with you know an uh, iPad. And basically, we, we lay eyes on the property to make sure that it is the, the way they responded. Because hmm. the biggest differentiator in value is condition. You know, you can take a house that's in great condition and it's priced way different than, you know, a house in poor condition. And so even if they answer the way they did, we have to validate that the answers are what they said they are. So once we validate or verify that the condition is what they said it is, then we actually move forward with a general home inspection just to make sure there's no defects in the property. If there are defects, we have to make a price adjustment to reflect those. And as long as the house inspects well, or, you know, if we have to make a couple adjustments, we move forward with closing. They can sell their house. You know, we close houses in a week. We've sold, uh, closed on houses in 90 days. It's really whatever the seller wants. It has to be convenient to the seller. And we kind of feel like, mm. you know, to, to do a 15 minute virtual walkthrough in an hour inspection and for your house in a 
three minute form online to have your house sold. We feel like it is the most streamlined process and the easiest way to sell a house. The funny thing is a lot of people that have never sold a house before don't realize how stressful it is, what the process is, you know, all these people coming in and out of your house, the negotiation deals fall apart. And so, you know, sometimes people don't see the value in it until they actually sell their home traditionally. And then they call us up or send us a message and say, I wish I would have, you know, sold it to flash house, but it's really just a, you know, a risk tolerance kind of model where we are identifying predictability and making our offers off of it. Yeah. I wanted to to ask about that. You, You mentioned Uber and kind of the other Amazon, the conveniences of our, of our everyday life and, and, you know, everything will be sold online, right? If it's not, that seems that that's the trajectory. But I, I wanted to ask about how that translates to real estate, given just kind of, it's not something we're doing very often. So is, yeah. if, if there's an aversion or some kind of resistance that, that you, you've experienced yeah. from, from, from folks. So we are still in the educational phase. All I buyers are, it doesn't matter how much open door is spending marketing, you know, millions and millions of dollars every month about this new company. It just takes a little bit of time to get traction. I I love to joke, you know, as a kid, your parents tell you, don't get in a car with strangers or don't take candy from strangers. And all of a sudden Uber comes out and you're getting in a car with strangers. And now (laughs) most of the Ubers are like, Hey, do you want some mints? Do you, you know, and it's like, now I'm (laughs) taking candy candy. from a stranger (laughs) in a car. Um, Obviously it was a very foreign concept at first, you know, like, until you, your friend did it or you took your first one and you got to where you were going safely. And next thing you know, it's like, how can I, how can I live without it? Obviously, this is a bigger decision. It takes a little bit of time to educate the market and get them comfortable. One of the interesting things and one of the reasons why we evolved our model to what we did is where we've had the most success is when the young team brings Flash House to the table with their client and there's credibility there. And they could say, we've already, they've helped a bunch of our clients. When we're going direct to the consumer, all of a sudden we have to win them over by showing them examples of homes similar to theirs that we've already acquired. And that other people are doing this. This is not a, we buy ugly homes. We're not a wholesale, you know, real estate company, but you know, to tie it back to our new model and what we're so excited about is we earn so much more trust and credibility when we're brought in the door by the realtor that they know and trust. And so I think that educates the the consumer much quicker versus us trying to do it all ourselves. One thing that I, I wanted to get your perspective on is there's been some, you know, fallout, if you will, in the eye buying space. As I understand it, and, and you'll know, correct me if I'm wrong here on the context, but Zillow had this kind of yeah. enormous eye buying program and, you know, relying on the company's algorithms where they think we're, you know, trying to, to purchase homes, ultimately ended up paying too much for these homes, laid off, you know, thousands of, of jobs. And it was, I think, the the largest part of their business from a, a revenue perspective and that, you know, they're writing off billions of dollars of, of losses on the remaining homes that they have. So I know we've kind of talked a little bit about risk, but like what went wrong and how, how are you thinking about those kinds of challenges? And, and maybe it's, it's tied to the idea of predictability that you're talking about, but how, how do you think about that? So Zillow's, um, so here's the, here's the interesting thing. 
one of the benefits of Zillow choosing to close down their offers program was that it created a lot of job opportunities or applicants for for us. And so we've talked to several VPs and data scientists and all, you know, we've gotten perspective from a lot of different people. Uh, in my opinion, Zillow's case study of an iBuyer is completely in a vacuum compared to everyone else. And here's why. Zillow is not an iBuyer. Zillow is a real estate platform where they, over the past decade, 15 years, have absolutely dominated that space, right? They're a publicly traded company. They drive the majority of their profit, their gross profit, from real estate fees and from Zillow mortgage and stuff like that. Zillow got an, got an appetite to get into the iBuying space. Open Door has been in the iBuying space since 2012. Zillow got in three and a half years ago. Zillow wanted to be number one in the iBuying space. So all of a sudden, they started telling their team, basically from top down, from my understanding, we're not concerned with profitability. Acquire anything and everything you can, whether it's on market, it's off market, it doesn't matter. Zillow basically had an appetite to be number one and to pass Open Door as the number one iBuyer. And they tried to do it in about a third of the time that Open Door did it. And Open Door has established strong foundational principles and data and pricing algorithms and stuff like that. They've been doing it three times as long. In the last quarter, Zillow acquired more homes than the previous six quarters combined. And so what really happened was Zillow just said, I don't care, keep buying, don't stop buying. We need to be number one. It doesn't matter how much money we lose. And what I think really happened is you have shareholders that are seeing these massive losses, right? And these properties that are just now sitting there because they just you you went out of control with the acquisitions that you you didn't have the infrastructure to be able to facilitate whether it's the repairs or getting them on the market or the dispositions the market started to slow down a little bit you know it softened up in june july and more july and all of a sudden now these numbers are really really hurting your quarterly earnings reports and so you know what basically i think happened was there was a lot of pressure from you know, shareholders and, you know, investors saying, wait, you guys run a wildly profitable company that you've dominated in a certain space of real estate or a certain sector of real estate for the past decade. What are you doing? And I think they just got so much pressure from how much money they were losing on the iBuyer side that I think ultimately they just said, shut it down. Here's what's interesting though, is I think they made a mistake by shutting it down. The, the whole real estate game nowadays is all about ancillary revenue and it's all about vertical integration. And Zillow essentially doesn't close the ecosystem off or the loop off by not offering an iBuyer, if you, an iBuying solution. If you go to Open Door, if you go to OfferPad, they offer lending services, they offer brokerage services, they offer title services. Now, if you really want the instant offer and you're a user on Zillow's platform, which they have you know, hundreds of millions, right? If they want the instant offer, they're leaving their ecosystem and going to Open Door and Open Door or, or OfferPad or Redfin Now or whichever iBuyer or Flash House. And what's interesting is Open Door is now providing all of those other services that Zillow do. So they're losing that person in their ecosystem. They're going to another competitors. And 
are they going to actually get that, that, that client back? And so I think that although it would have cost them a lot of money, I think that they actually would have, if they were comfortable taking losses for probably the next six quarters, which they're large, they're large losses, but I actually think they would have actually ended up coming out way ahead Mm. if they could just absorb, you know, the expense of doing so for the next year, year and a half. So it's just, it's really interesting. I think that they just got a lot of pressure. People started seeing these numbers and, you know, it's funny because when you say, you know, it was their, what's, what's interesting about iBuying is you look at top line revenue and the acquisition of these assets are so expensive when people are seeing revenue of billions of dollars, that's just the acquisition and disposition of the homes. The, the gross profit margin is very thin. So versus you look at like agent services or selling ads to agents where they make the majority of their money, you know, that the profit margin is so large on that, that the numbers, you know, the, the, the data, the numbers are a little bit misconstrued and a lot of times manipulated when people hear top line revenue and how much I buying generates. It's really just that's the uh, the acquisition and disposition of real estate. So in the iBuying space, like talk me a little bit through competition. So so like usually when you find this repeatable structure that can be scaled out to some degree and you're earning a nice rate of return, I would imagine it invites other people to do what you are doing. How much of what you've done is created competition? How much has been already there? And how, how do you think about that differentiation? Here's what's funny is it's it's uh, it's a it's a hard business to get into. It's capital intensive. It's high risk. It's low margin. It takes time to establish credibility and to educate the consumer. But once you're in, and once you are able to raise capital or debt, all of a sudden that opens up a lot of opportunities, right? And so I think. You look at Open Door and you look at like Open Door. I keep referencing them because I think they're the kind of pioneer in the space. And it's like they've been in Phoenix. That was their first market they ever went into 10 years ago, roughly. They only have 7% market share in Phoenix. And they're the biggest, that's their biggest market that, you know, it's like it just takes time. It, you know, you're acquiring three, four, or $500,000 assets. It, it's not as easy. As you know, most, most, whether it's investor, most investors don't like hardware anymore. You know, everyone likes software, just where do, what are you going to do with it? Where are you going to store it? You know, it costs money to produce it, right? Look at the expense of houses, right? And so the, because it's so capital intensive, it slows down the growth, it slows down the entry point and it slows down the growth of a bunch of companies, either completely dominating it or expanding or getting into it. And you know, I, I think you you have kind of a unique perspective on this from both the Flash House and the the young team, you know, kind of combination. But do you feel there's competition from the old world? How how much of it is like from the traditional selling process versus other innovative tech forward companies? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, I think there's, I think it, it depends who you ask. If you're in the Midwest right now and you ask them about any of these prop tech companies that have raised hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to scale quick and to disrupt, they wouldn't think they're a threat at all, right? They just don't know about them. They're not in the Midwest yet. If you were to go to Phoenix or Dallas or Atlanta, and you mentioned any one of these prop tech companies, 
they are concerned. You know, the traditional realtors are mm-hmm. concerned. And I mean, I think that's why we really built what we built and involved Flash House and what we did is we kind of look like we're disrupting the disruptors. We're empowering the agents with all the tools that essentially are going to beat them. And so we think that they still really have a place in the market. What's interesting is, and this is why we're so excited about what we're doing, when you think about just this digital transformation and how it is disrupting the local realtor, I think it puts, it kind of forces the consumer to make a decision. Do you want to go with this traditional, you know, local trusted person that you've worked with before and that you have a relationship with? Or do you want to work with this cool company that provides this seamless process and then you can do it with a couple clicks of the button? And I think that, you know, unfortunately, it's a bad consumer experience to have to make a decision between one or the other. And that's really why we've, you know, kind of produced or evolved to what we are is now you can work with your local trusted realtor while getting this digital solution or this, you know, some of this optionality with the instant offer. One of the the kind of tropes of the the industry, as I understand it, was always you know location, 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 and I'm I'm kind of convinced often the variables for evaluating a given investment you can typically boil it down to like five things that matter more than anything else, and so I I kind of picked up on this questionnaire idea that you have up front in in the in the buying process for people kind of giving you some insight into to what they're what they're offering, but what are in your mind kind of those most important things when when you're evaluating these opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I think location, location, location is <laughs> is is by far number one, and I think it's the mo- it's the it's probably the easiest from a data set standpoint to identify value off of it because you can just you know look at proximity to other comparables and you know you can see density of increased price or decreased price i think in my opinion and this is what makes i buying so tricky and why we've had to invest so much into just our processes and you know the way we do everything i think condition is what really alters value significantly right and so just from wearing my realtor hat, not even my flash house hat, you know, when you have a wet basement that spooks a potential buyer, or when you have a house that has all wallpaper or that has, I don't know, like, here's a, here's a good example. We, we were joking about this on a call the other day, um, internally in flash house, you can paint a house and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're improving it, right? Like you could paint, you could paint, you could paint your house red and that might actually be detrimental to the value because now the buyer is going to want to paint it back to something more neutral. And so when you look at how much condition swings value, I think that's what makes it so tricky. If you're to go on any kind of county auditor or realtor.com or Zillow or whatever it is, and just look at what they predict is the value of the home without knowing the condition, I think that's where they've really gotten in trouble with their kind of predictive AVMs, it's all based on just specifications, locations, square footage, bedrooms, bathrooms. It doesn't take into account condition. So we've had to work really hard to focus on what is the condition of the property so that we can offer accordingly. And then also there's a lot of decision whether we improve the condition after we acquire the property 
And if so, how much, how far do we go? You know? So I think that's really, whether it's buyers looking to buy, whether it's us looking to acquire, whether it's us thinking about our selling strategy, I think condition is always the biggest driver and just, you know, how does that affect value? Building on that a little bit, when you think about kind of the business of Flash House, where is kind of the opportunity for growth that you see the most? Is it in geographic expansion or is it in kind of those ancillary offerings that that you've been talking about so far? Both, by far. You have to do both, right? Because if you don't do both, your ultimate, someone else will. And the, the ancillary just naturally, the, the ancillary is foolish not to, you, you have to, that's, that's really why people get into the business is the attachment rates. When you have the consumer in your ecosystem and you can provide the most value to them in a completely, you know, well-rounded experience from start to finish, uh, the ancillary is such a no brainer because they have to use a title company when they, sell their house or when we acquire it that, you know, we have to use a title company when we go to sell it. The majority of buyers have to use a mortgage company when they get it. So it's like, why not use your mortgage? You have a captive audience that's sitting in your house, that's buying the house from you. Why not use your mortgage company? So I think that's where the majority of, of people get excited, especially in this prop tech space. They're not as concerned about the profitability on whatever their core competency is. They're excited about all the long-term attachment opportunities. From an expansion standpoint, I think you have to show that this model is proven in multiple markets and diverse markets. I think as soon as you look at some of the iBuyers that have not got to the Midwest, as soon as they start proving their model in the Midwest or in the East Coast where you have century homes and different different styles architecturally and climate and stuff like that, I think as they expand or we expand to markets where there's already iBuyers, I think now you have a true threat to whatever the industry is that you're expanding in. I think that if you can show that your model works in multiple markets, diverse markets, I think all of a sudden now you are taken extremely seriously. And by then it's probably almost too late for any of the competition to even catch up or to create a defense strategy. What does the future of home buying and selling look like if you can realize the vision that you have for the industry? There's a digital transformation that has realtors still at the center of it. You know, I just, I think there's a couple industries. I think you'll continue to see digital transformation and it's just a matter of whose hands it gets into. But I think there's a couple industries, medicine, probably legal, real estate, a few others that are just such large emotional based decisions that I still think that people will be involved in the process for a very long time. I just think it's a matter of, can we get them, can they provide enough value outside of just being there to provide the emotional support or the guidance or, you know, the local knowledge or whatever it is, can they provide enough value through technology or through simplicity or, you know, ease. And it's like for them, for, for, for the consumer to value them being there for the emotional support, you know, there will be a point if the realtor's or whatever industry can't compete at all with whatever the disruptors, you know, whatever the technology that they're using to disrupt this process or the, this industry is, 
then I think they'll eventually be out of business. But I think that as long as they still have most of the tools that are being offered by the disruptors, I think they have a, a place you know, in the transaction for a very long time. Mm. So kind of an empowerment of, of the agents almost. Totally. That, and I mean, that's what our mission is to empower all realtors with an iBuying solution. And I, I've just, I've seen it, you know, it's so interesting to, to see it from both sides, to see it from the traditional real estate side, and then to see it from this disruption side. And it doesn't have to be, you don't, you know, I, I constantly think of industries where, you know, they weave kind of in and out of centralization and decentralization. And it's like, you know, it keeps swinging back and forth. And, you know, when Zillow first started, it was all about transparency. You know, like Zillow said, the real estate industry is, is, is screwed because there's no transparency. No one knows what anything's worth. Everyone relies on whether it's the realtor that, you know, holds, shows the value and there's no transparency. Well, what Zillow ended up doing was saying, we're, we have the most transparent platform. It's the best place to go to, 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 to know everything about real estate. So then they started capturing a bunch of users or consumers on their platform, millions and millions. And they said, how do we monetize this? So then what they started doing is basically selling those opportunities when people say, I want to see this property to an agent who would want to buy it. And now the consumer thinks that they're going to see it with the agent whose listing it is. And a random agent would go whoever is willing to buy the lead. So what started as a platform about transparency all of a sudden turned into capitalizing through a non-transparent way. And so I think now it's starting to shift back the other way because the consumer it gets upset when all of a sudden they're like, who are you? And they're like, oh, we're a realtor. Zillow set us up with you. And they're like, but we didn't realize we were talking to you. And so I think it's just, and now all of a sudden, how are companies looking at that and saying, what's the solution to solve that problem? And it swings back the other way. And so I think you'll just kind of see this natural kind of weaving in and out of the, the biggest companies getting disrupted. And then all of a sudden the disruptors becoming huge. And then the next company saying, we need to disrupt them. And so I just, I, I for the past you know, for the past decade or so, 15 years, I've been observing it. And it's just like, I think that will always continue to happen. I want to take a, a quick detour. You mentioned the the kind of the, the cost of capital in the space is very high. It's not like a traditional software company where, you know, you get the zero marginal cost on, on everything. So could you tell us a little bit about like financing, equity, debt, how, how you've gone around, you know, bringing on the capital to, to build the company? Me and my partner are extremely fortunate. I mean, it's easy. It's, it's, it's a lot easier to start a company and invest in it when you have income coming from an established other company, right? So uh, both of us have been fortunate enough to do well with other businesses that had allowed us to invest a significant amount of our own money. And then, you know, from a capital side, once you can show, first we financed everything, put together a little bit of friends and family, you know, got a little bit scrappy, put together some lines of credit, established some lines with larger institutions, stuff like that. You know, once you start to show a proven model and you show consistency and profitability and you show that, you know, you have collateral to back it up and, it, you know, you have essentially an asset backed loan that you're, you're taking out, it becomes a little bit easier. I remember at first, when we first started looking to raise debt, we thought it would be way easier. And we went, you know, kind of banked with banks that we had relationships with. And, you know, he, my, my 
partner kept saying, he was like, this is a no brainer. Like I've, I've had a banking relationship with them forever. And, you know, they, they pull a hard credit, you know, they do a hard credit pull. And all of a sudden I'm like, they better give us money. I didn't realize they were like pulling our credit. And it's like, he's like, yeah, it's a no brainer. Like we've been banking with them, you know, a healthy account. And they'd be like, unfortunately you don't have enough. You don't have enough of a, a, of a track record for us to lend you money on this. Right. And it's like, you know, what do you mean? And then, then we go to the next one and then they'd pull, do a hard pull. And it's like, you know, I got like four or five hard pulls in like a month and my credit, you know, it's like, it's my baby. And it's like, and, and then finally we started talking to a little bit more less conventional banks where it just, it gave us a little bit of a safety net. And then of course, then we started to get some traction and then we had, you know, a track record. And then all of a sudden, you know, what's funny is at first you have to, from the debt facilities, family offices, you know, it's, it, we're on their terms, right? And you, you got to do what you have to do. Luckily, we turned property so quick that it's the, the cost of capital is not crazy. But it's funny, once you start, you know, you have multiple debt facilities that want to give us money, then all of a sudden how the leverage swings back the other way, where, you know, all of a sudden, you know, money's so cheap right now where they they all want us to use their money. And so, you know, now we're at a place, now we're in a really fortunate position where, we we have access to more debt than really we need right now but it's it's great to have because you just it's you know it's your it's your blood supply right like if 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 you run out of money you're completely hamstrung you can't acquire properties and and that's one of the reasons why i think like i said when you talk about expansion and you know stuff like that it's hard to do unless you have these massive warehouse lines and that's when you're bringing in big venture capital and you know like open door billion dollar soft bank backing, like, you know, it starts to get very, very big and very macro quickly. Yeah. Maybe before we, we kind of bookend it with some reflections on your, your entrepreneurial journey and, and maybe even some, some Cleveland real estate, where is flash house today? And you know, that, that story you kind of told in the beginning, what have been some of those like personal outcomes that, that you've seen and, and, and some of the, the human element to this? Yeah, I mean, Flash House today is in a really exciting place. We are in that place where things are about to get real wild, you know. And uh, for the past three years, you talk about like kind of the, the the human elements, the emotional elements. This for the past three years, you know, I've invested a lot of money into this. I believe in the theory of it and the thesis of it, and I. I've invested all of my time into it um, while also building a, another company. We're finally at that place where you're going to see like massive growth, large kind of PR opportunities for us with just some of the things that we have going on. And it's exciting, you know, and it's been a grind. And the funny thing about it is that selling real estate and growing this big real estate team has been fun. Um, I'd probably say it's, it's the most rewarding that I've had a lot of team members that I've helped, that I've helped grow and groom. And they're, they've seen so much success as realtors and they've been with me for a long time. And that, you know, they're all the, all, they all these great careers now. And, you know, that's been really fun and it's been fun to help all of our clients, you know, sold thousands of homes. Uh, Flash house is a something, it's just, it's something it's, it's almost hard to explain, but it's just, it's so much bigger, you know, it's a challenging problem. It's, it's, it's a problem that's new, right? It's, it's not as easy as just there's 
hundreds of, you know, there's millions of realtors selling real estate. There's only a few people that are really playing in this iBuying space. And I can understand why now three years later, because every time we thought we had it figured out, we, you know, got slapped in the face because we realized that we were so wrong and like that, that, that idea was never going to work. Right. And we're finally at a place now where we've, where it's just, it's becoming very exciting. And, you know, there, there's been times where I think you only, especially with a startup, there's, there's times where you only feel the pain, you know, it's like, if, am I ever, is this ever going to be anything? Am I ever going to make money? Am I ever going to stop losing money? And I think it's just really exciting that we're at a place now where it's like, I don't want to say we've made it because we're far from that, but we're at a place where we just, we're starting to acknowledge that we have something huge in front of us. Um, and we have a massive opportunity and that it's hard not to, to get really excited about it. Yeah. It's a, it's a commendable place to be. It's, it's very cool. It's a tough journey. <laughs> it's a tough journey. And, and a lot of, a lot of people, uh, what I think is, what I think is amazing about the journey is a lot of people never get there to, to just where we are right now. And we're looking to go to where very few people have ever been. Right. And we understand what's ahead and the, the work and the commitment and the dedication. And, you know, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's, it's become, you know, it's, it's an addiction, it's passion. It's, it's what fuels me and what it's just, it's, it's really exciting. And, you know, I'm excited to, for you to see where we're at in a year or two from now. And it's like, we're just, it's, it's going to be wild. Yeah. You mentioned getting slapped in the the face a few times. <laughs> what what are what are some of the lessons that that you've learned along the way here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, you know, we all of a sudden have a massive month, right? And it's like from an acquisition, from a disposition, from a, you know, an inbound opportunity, whatever it may be, and we're like here we go. This is what we've been waiting for. And then the next month literally the phones don't ring once and it's like I'm so confused. I thought we were, we finally made it, you know, or you have a team member that you bring someone on that you think super talented and maybe they just were the right person in the wrong place or, you know, and you, you think this person's going to change the trajectory of the organization. Right. And, and then they don't. And you know, that that's a part of it, right? Like there, there's all these things in business that it's just, I think, are very easy to get excited about before you have a large enough sample size or a proven model. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've, it's not that I've become numb, but I think I've just learned that it's like, we're, we've still only been, we haven't been doing this a long time. You know, we've really started, I would say in the past, maybe year and a half is when we really started to identify what the vision was and started building towards it. And so I think I've just become a little bit more, seasoned and wise in my short year and a half of <laughs> every day is going to be a new journey. And, you know, the day before is gone and can I improve just a little bit the next day? And, you know, so those are the type of things that I think a year and a half ago, I probably one day was on cloud nine and the next day I was six feet below. And, you know, and it, 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 I just, I was on this emotional roller coaster. And now I think it's like, I understand the vision. I understand the mission. I understand our our, our strategy. I understand. I, I see three years out what this business looks like. There's a plan to get there, and it's just you know from a an operator standpoint, like it's just we're just in such a different place, you know. And a lot of that helps 
um, that we're getting such great guidance from, you know, people that you've talked to and that are really influential. And it have been, it's, it's amazing how founders like to pour into other founders and just the wisdom that mm. we've, that I've seeked and, um, you know, I absorb it all. I just, I, I, and hopefully I hope one day I'm in a place, I think the, the end game, what would make nothing more would make me exciting than for people to seek, you know, my guidance and my wisdom. And I would love to give it to people because I think, you know, that's been one of the biggest eye openers is how many people have shared with me and helped me get to where we are, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Everything you're saying resonates a lot. I've come to think of startup years as like dog years in terms of experience. You just like accumulate seven years of learning this very compact (laughs) timeline rolling with with the punches of of trying to build a company. Yeah, it's... It's that's but that's why we play the game though. And either if if you're if you don't have the stomach for it, the appetite for it, it's uh it's not the right you know, you'll you'll be in and out in a heartbeat. And I just I've I've learned to take a lot of criticism and evolve from it and improve from it and I've learned to take advice and guidance and just implement it and and that's and and I think there there can be no ego, you know, if there is just I don't think you stand a chance. Yeah. One of the things before we kind of close out here was what you have felt has been maybe the most transferable from your time as a, as a chef into this world you find yourself in now. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing about it is when I was 18, all my friends were going to Ohio state and Indiana and Wisconsin and all these, you know, they were, they were partying and they were, I went to culinary school and you know we had 6 30 a.m clean shaven your your chef jacket had to be pressed and it taught me such a a unique skill set of discipline and preparation and all these other things that it's like it's amazing to look back at all of that and say how much impact is, did that have in who i am today you know and I, what would my life be like if i if I never did that, you know, and, you know, some of the chefs that I worked for just unbelievable minds and creativity and uh, how they approach things. And although, you know, this, the, the culinary world is not this like high margin, massive growth kind of world, the people that are in it are, are in it because they're passionate about it. And, you know, you, you take some of that passion combined with the creativity and the work ethic and you apply it to large addressable markets. And it's like, it's, it's wild just to think about the opportunities that are out there. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll tie it out uh, here in, in Cleveland. It's interesting your perspective from the young luxury experience, like maybe the pandemic has anecdotally for me at least seemed that it has had this impact on people moving to Cleveland and kind of this, not just Cleveland, but this influx out of kind of the more dense populous cities around the country to, to cities like Cleveland. But I'd love to just get your perspective, having both built Flash House and, and as a realtor just on Cleveland real estate and, and how, how you're thinking about it and what, what that looks like. Yeah. So what's interesting about Cleveland real estate is it's, um, you know, it's kind of a hidden gem. The value is unbelievable. Over the past probably three, four, five years, there's been a lot of institutional money flocking to Cleveland, acquiring as much as they can because of just where the price points are and where, you know, money is so cheap. But I think, you know, Cleveland is, it's a special place. When I was 18, I said, 
I'm never coming back. You know, and I went to culinary school <laughs> in New York and I moved to Chicago and I lived in Vegas and I, you know, and all of a sudden I'm 38 years old. I, I live on the East side of Cleveland and got two kids and a wife and two dogs. And it's like, you know, some acreage and it's like, I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. And, you know, it's such, it's such a special place and it's so easy. Life is just so easy here. I am the biggest cheerleader for Northeast Ohio, not just because we sell it, but because I've seen so many people move here from these big cities and from these big markets where everything is such a rat race and, and you struggle to live, to say you live in New York or in LA or in San Fran or whatever it is. And they get here and their eyes just light up on the beauty and the simplicity and the elegance and the, you know, and it's just all these things that it just, it is very rare. I feel like that we get people that move here that are like, I just can't wait to get out of here. And it's, it's really cool, you know, and we, and we get the, and we hear it from them and, you know, it's uh, the, the people that do leave here, you know, sometimes you get transplants that come in and get out. They're like, I'm so sad to leave. Like this is, it's just, it's, it's a great place to call home. It is. It is. The closing question that I have for everyone is, is for their favorite hidden gem in Cleveland. And no one's ever said Cleveland real estate before. <laughs> yeah. Cleveland real estate is a hidden gem. Uh, <laughs> it is. I mean, if you think about it, just the, you know, the, the Metro parks are obviously such, and I don't know if they're really hidden, but I, I, I would say the Metro parks and really university circle. I think that, you know, kind of that cultural arts district if you weren't from here and all of a sudden you just got dropped off there, right? Like just dropped off right in the middle by the art museum and you know, Wade Oval and just in everything that's there. I just, I think it's so architecturally stunning. I think that it's just special. I wish, you know, one of my biggest gripes with Cleveland is I wish that it was just a little bit more accessible you know, and there was a little bit more connectivity from, you know, that to the lake, to downtown, to the West side, to the Heights. And it's like, I don't think people, myself included, take advantage of all of the amenities or the hidden gems as much as, as we should just because of accessibility, you know, and that's, you know, I wish I was uh, in urban planning about a hundred years ago or something. And uh, I would have, I definitely would have not solved the problem, but uh, you know, I, I like to think I would have, and it's, it's one of those things that it's such a special area. You know, I, I maybe get down there once a month, you know, to go to dinner or to kind of walk around. And it's like, every time I'm there, it's like, ah, this is, I should be here every week, you know? Yeah. No, I, I, I feel the same way. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and for sharing your story. And I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible how, how Flash House has, has developed in the last few years. So really, really appreciate it. Yeah, I, this was a treat. And like I said, you know, I, I love what you're doing for the city. And um, it's amazing to see so many founders and talented people that are, you know, being cultivated here. And uh, I love that you're putting a spotlight on it. So really appreciate you, you know, taking the time and having me on. Absolutely. If folks have anything they would like to follow up with you about, where is the, the best place for them to, to reach you, Ryan? I think just on LinkedIn is is normally the best, uh, you know, or Ryan at flashhouse.com. You know, feel free to shoot me an email. We'd love to connect. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ryan. Love it. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. 
We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.